You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. An election hack that wasn't, more DDoS in New Zealand stock exchange, a look at how Iranian cyber contractors make money as a byproduct of cyber espionage, malware sneaks past Apple's notarization process, the bandit economy that's grown up around Fortnite, Ben Yellen looks at how the upcoming U.S. elections could direct the nation's cybersecurity strategies, our guest is Julian Waits from Devo with highlights from their second annual SOC performance report. And the U.S. Army's youngest branch celebrates a birthday. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. Was it a hack or just some matters of public record? We're betting public record. This morning, the Russian-language newspaper Kommersant aroused a Twitter flurry with a report that data on 7.6 million Michigan voters, as well as millions of voters in other states, Connecticut, Arkansas, Florida, and North Carolina, had appeared on Russian dark web sites. The data were said to include name, date of birth, gender, date of registration, address, postal code, email, voter identification number, and polling station number. But, as Dmitry Alperovich tweeted in an update, there's probably a lot less here than meets the eye, since in many states, all that information is considered a matter of public record and can be supplied in response to ordinary information requests. So really, nothing to see here, let's all just move along. But one aspect of Kommersant's story is interesting. It says that the dark web hoods with the data on their hands were thinking of turning the information in to the U.S. State Department in exchange for a payout under the Rewards for Justice program. We doubt that will work, but give the hoods credit for thinking outside that old box if, of course, the whole thing happened at all. The New Zealand Herald reports that after a good start yesterday, New Zealand's NZX stock exchange again sustained a disruptive distributed denial-of-service attack. The exchange was able to work through the attack and continue trading by deploying a range of workarounds and alternative procedures. The incident remains under investigation by GCSB and law enforcement authorities. 
We've had occasion before to mention signs that some Iranian threat actors had made an appearance in criminal markets. Security firm CrowdStrike has some new information on the development. CrowdStrike researchers have released a report on Pioneer Kitten, also known as Fox Kitten or Parasite, an Iranian threat actor believed to be a contractor providing cyber espionage support to the government of Iran. Last month, Pioneer Kitten was observed in various black markets offering to sell access to compromised networks. CrowdStrike thinks this represents an attempt on the group's part at revenue diversification. The researchers say that Pioneer Kitten's operations are marked by a profound reliance on exploits of remote external services that attack their target's internet-facing assets for initial access. They also see an almost total reliance on open-source tooling during operations. Pioneer Kitten is especially interested in VPN and network appliance exploits, notably CVE-2019-11510, CVE-2019-19781, and most recently CVE-2020-5902. CrowdStrike thinks that this particular bent lends itself to opportunistic attacks. Finally, Pioneer Kitten relies on SSH tunneling achieved with open-source tools like Ngrok and a custom tool SSH Minion to establish communication with implants and keyboard activity through remote desktop protocol. Pioneer Kitten's espionage targets have for the most part been in Israel or North America. The sectors they've been seen hitting include technology, government, defense, healthcare, aviation, media, academic, engineering, consulting, and professional services, chemical, manufacturing, financial services, insurance, and retail. The network access they're selling appears to be just bycatch of their espionage take, which is to be expected given the threat group's opportunistic mode of operation. ZDNet observes that the biggest customers of such initial access brokers tend to be ransomware gangs. TechCrunch reports that Apple's well-regarded notarization process designed to help its gatekeeper to exclude malware from its app store has permitted some malware to slip into approved software. The malware in question was disguised as an Adobe Flash installer. That's a common enough design for malware, but the point is that earlier Flash exploits had been kept out of the notarized walled garden of Apple's app store. Security firm Malwarebytes this morning argued that this ought to shake Mac users out of security complacency. Mac security is good, but like everything else, it's not infallible. Night Lion Security has taken a look at the ways in which cybercriminals monetize exploitation of online games like Fortnite. It amounts in the aggregate to a billion-dollar black market in accounts and in-game commodities, Fortnite, Roblox, and Minecraft are among the most popular targets, and some well-known gangs are involved in the criminal trade, including the Gnostic players and the Shiny Hunters. The underground market is as sophisticated as such criminal economies often are. Distributors sell to resellers who then sell to consumers. Some resellers maintain their own gray market shops. The sale of accounts is obvious, but what kinds of in-game purchases are in demand? Skins, mostly, that is, the appearance of the characters you use as your avatar. Maybe you want Joker makeup, a sombrero, and a cocktail dress worn with a pair of Uggs. We're not saying you would, but it might be something someone would like. Anywho, if you're unclear on the concept of a skin, ask any middle schooler. And finally, today is the sixth birthday of the U.S. Army's cyber branch. The Army describes its youngest tribe as 
a maneuver branch with the mission to conduct defensive and offensive cyberspace operations. Cyber is the only branch designed to directly engage threats within the cyberspace domain. So congratulations and happy birthday to Uncle Sam's cyber warriors. As they say around Fort Gordon, defend, attack, exploit. And we'll add, best wishes, cyber branch. Thanks for your service. Stay safe and good hunting. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The team at real-time analytics firm Devo recently released the second annual version of their SOC performance report. Julian Waits is GM of Devo's Cyber Business Unit, and he joins us with highlights from the report. When we originally started the report, it was because over and over again, we'd go into large corporations or large government entities. we talked to the security analysts, and uh, in general, they all seem to really not like their jobs much. Uh, in a field that you would think is very exciting uh, with the, the amount of things that change, especially with cyber defense, you know, defending your corporation or, or a country, would have it. Uh, you would think people would be more enthused about their work. And what we found over and over again is there were just so many issues that start with, you know, internal politics, but really uh, leads itself more to just people being overworked, you know, processes not defined well, way too many tools. And this constant fear of, you know, what am I missing because because uh, of lack of visibility into everything that's going on in their environment. Hmm. Well, let's go through some of the details together. Can you share us some of the insights from the report? Sure. So, uh, you know, I just touched on one of them. Uh, one of the things the report talked about was, you know, 70% of the people that we uh, surveyed uh, complained of a lack of visibility into their IT infrastructure. And, and that number last year 
was 65%. So rather than decreasing, it's actually increasing. Another 64% of the respondents talked about internal turf battles, generally between the security group and the IT group, who owns what, who's responsible for what. Uh, you know, in general, security groups are responsible for defining the policies around how things are configured in the environment, but the IT group is responsible for changing the configuration. If the security group says, hey, we need to patch these servers, but the patch doesn't get done and there's a breach, well, whose fault is that, right? Hmm. So there's just a lot of confusion. Is there a certain amount of, of resignation that uh, that this is a position that's going to be tough, that it's going to be stressful, and you know, as a result, people are going to sort of flow through? Correct. So um, I would tell you overwhelmingly, when I talk to many chief information security officers and senior security executives, it's kind of understood before they start, hey, I'll get a group of people in, maybe even provide them a certain level of training for 18 months to two years. And then, you know, they're going to be able to get a better job, which pays more than what I'm going to be able to pay. And so I'm basically training them for a while, understanding that it's going to be a very hectic environment because they're constantly rotating, especially through, you know, there's three tiers of SOC analysts where tier three is the most advanced, you know, your threat hunters. And the goal is to get those tier one people as close to tier three as you can. And the, the more forward-looking CISOs are the ones who try and be creative about how am I going to keep these people uh, once they have the, the knowledge to be able to go somewhere else and potentially get more money. And I've seen some things that have worked very well, like rotation around multiple disciplines within the SOC because there's so many different things that people can do and learn from. Uh, but it is it is a well-accepted problem, and I wish, I wish the industry would change on that. That's Julian Waits from Devo. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast, Ben, always great to have you back. Good to be with you again, Dave. Uh, I want to talk about this article written by Eric Geller over on Politico. Uh, Eric always uh, does good work over there. And it's titled, Biden prepping to ramp up U.S. cyber defenses while keeping some Trump policies. Uh, I mean, we are hot and heavy into uh, the campaign mode here. Both uh, parties have had their conventions 
Uh, and this is really an outline of, of what Joe Biden's planning on doing when it comes to cyber defenses. What's your analysis here, Ben? Well, first, I was looking for the sentimental video at one of these conventions on cybersecurity issues, and I just didn't find it. <laughs> right. I wanted to be shedding some tears here, but apparently uh-huh. that, that's not what gets the eyeballs. The fields of flowing wheat and the, the sun rising over the, over the server farms. Yeah, or... <laughs> the, the dramatic music. Yeah, we just— right. We were uh, not lucky enough to get that. Uh, okay. And that gets to an actually serious point, which is that cybersecurity as a policy issue is pretty under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's the nature of the campaign. This is a campaign happening during several crises. We have uh, the coronavirus crises, the uh, economic crises emerging from that uh, coronavirus pandemic, and then obviously the past few months, these uh, protests related to uh, police violence. So it's just been an issue that hasn't gotten the full attention of the political press. But it seems like behind the scenes, um, the former vice president is preparing a team uh, of partially veterans from the Obama administration, but some private sector players to develop his own cyber policy. Um, a lot of what he's proposing to do isn't actually that different from what the Trump administration has done over the past uh, four years. You know, I think a lot of the Trump administration's cyber policies have been, you know, nominally nonpartisan. Uh, right. I think, you know, the directive that gave the military greater authority to hack our adversaries, that's not something that uh, the former vice president would get rid of. In terms of personnel, I think uh, a Biden administration would uh, make some changes. They'd probably restore the uh, key White House cybersecurity posts that we saw uh, in the Obama years. Um, You know, and in some of the policy plans, which you really have to dig deep into his website to get, they talk about some of their more specific proposals, uh, imposing substantial and lasting costs on countries that interfere with our elections uh, was one of the uh, examples Mm-hmm. Um, you know, defending against attacks that would impact our economy, our critical infrastructure, national security, et cetera. So you see the hints of, you know, sort of a cohesive cybersecurity agenda. You know, in terms of the Trump-Biden contrast, I'm not sure the discrepancy in their viewpoint on this issue is as wide as it is in other political areas. But right. certainly there might be a reordering of, of priorities. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's the thing here is that uh, to me – uh, cybersecurity is really something that has unusual bipartisan support in these days. It's really it's not very controversial, so there's not a whole lot of fighting to be done over it. There's there's not a lot of um, I don't know political points to be scored by having differences of opinions. It seems like everybody pretty much agrees that this is an issue. Yeah, I mean, I put one warning there in that things can become polarized very quickly if people mm. you don't like politically take a stand on an issue, your natural instinct is going to you know, be to take the opposite position. We saw that politicization this summer with uh, mask wearing. We've seen it with all other types of issues where it seems like they are nominally nonpartisan, but they can right. become partisan in certain circumstances. So, you know, I'm always uh, w- watching out for that. And certainly some aspects of cybersecurity policy, particularly related to election interference, have been caught up in partisan warfare. Um, but you're right in terms of, you know, the meat and potatoes of our cybersecurity policy, um, you know, going after more proactively after our uh, adversaries, protecting our critical infrastructure. Those are things that you really do see um, a lot of bipartisan support for. Yeah, I wonder if we'll see more 
uh, stability with some of these positions. It seems like uh, the folks in cybersecurity positions uh, at the White House and, and at that level, it's sort of been like the defense against the dark arts teacher. There's, you know, they there's a lot of turnover there. Yes, there always is a lot of turnover. Um, you know, I think a lot of the career folks who are in government, you look at the people at the National Security Agency, even when we have a major ideological change in administrations, some of those career folks, or as you might call them, the deep state, uh, <laughs> are still going to be there making policy. So I think there is going to be more continuity than people might think, um, especially in the first couple of years of a new administration. I mean, you have this level of path dependency where so many initiatives um, that are, will have come from the Trump administration would continue in a potential Biden administration just because the projects have already started. Um, mm-hmm. And unless, you know, you put your tentacles into all levers of the federal government to try and change policy, there is kind of a lot of inertia there. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's definitely something to look out for. Yeah. All right. Well, again, it's an article by Eric Geller. It's titled Biden Prepping to Ramp Up U.S. Cyber Defenses While Keeping Some Trump Policies. It's over on Politico. Worth a read. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. Save you time, keep you informed, and it smells April fresh. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.